We are back for another exciting .5 episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. I'm Casey Doran. And today we're going to be looking at your feedback and looking at a couple of the weird, bite-sized pieces of nerd culture that we've encountered over the past month or so. Before we get started on anything else, though, I really want to talk about this video that I've seen on YouTube. It's made its way around Facebook. It's called Riker Sits Down. <laughs> this is the fantastic video, the supercut of Riker. Every time he tries to sit down in a chair anywhere on the Enterprise D, he has to lift up one leg and step over the chair and sit in it like a life coach or the career counselor at your high school. This must be a decision that Jonathan Frakes made as a character. Right. Because instead of sitting in a chair the way a normal person does, we will go around to the front of the chair and just lower ourselves. He it looks like he's mounting a horse. <laughs> <laughs> He's swinging his leg over the back of the chair. And he does it so consistently, this video has a full minute of it. And the part that blows me away is that I never noticed this in any of the viewings of any of the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation that I've ever seen. And it's so consistent, too. I mean, that's the thing. It's not like you're pulling it out of just one episode out of 70. It happens an awful lot. I think he looks like he's doing the straight talk thing. He wants to rap with the teenagers about what they've done wrong. It does have that kind of vibe to it, like, hey, look, everybody, I'm cool, I'm hip like you kids. <laughs> but the best part is that not only does he get into chairs this way, there's a scene where Picard calls him into his room, and he sits down in a chair, and then he dismisses Riker and the other officer, and he gets up and swings his leg backwards over the back of the chair <laughs> and gets out of it the exact same way. <laughs> and I just kept thinking, there's got to be a moment where there's a director of an episode who sees him do this and just goes, cut. <laughs> what was that? What What were you doing there? <laughs> you know, I, like this could have a more mundane explanation because the actor who plays Riker, Jonathan Frakes, is a head taller than most all the other actors that are on there, I guess, b besides Worf. And so you always see, the, there's also something called the Riker lean, if you want to plug that into Google and check it out. Riker's also always tilting his shoulders to one direction. And we think it's because when he's standing next to someone else, he's so much taller that he has to sort of lean or hunch down to be able to be comfortably in the same shot as another actor. So in reality, he's used to doing all sorts of strange things that when you look at them, they don't really make a whole lot of sense. But if you realize that you've got to squeeze in and do awkward things to make sure that two people can fit in a given shot, maybe it's just too practical. But as for why he needs to not only mount but dismount in the same way from those chairs, we may never know. I like to think that he's kind of a, a savant in this way, an idiot savant, <laughs> that you know how a lot of people were taught how to sit down in a chair? I think that maybe his mom and dad never taught him how to do this, and he figured it out on his own. It's Riker's left-handed handwriting. So the other big news that we're having this week is that we're seeing the beginnings of the new generation of consoles from both Sony and Microsoft. And Microsoft unveiled itself first with the Xbox One, and it felt like they had confirmed every bad rumor that we had possibly heard about this Xbox One. The interesting part about it was is PS4 had their four shareholders announcement several weeks before, but they didn't uh, actually showcase the system. They just showcased the controller, and they said, well, we'll show you later at E3. But Microsoft came out full bore, and almost the entirety of that first press conference was them not 
focusing on, you know, what most of the people who actually buy gaming systems for, games, as being a media center. It being like your second TiVo or tracking sports or watching NFL. And the games were an afterthought. But that really wasn't what set off the firestorm, was it, Mike? No. In fact, the thing that really stands out about the Xbox One is not so much what it can do, but what they've specifically said that it can't do. One, you have to check in on your system every 24 hours online, I assume to make sure you're not dead? (laughs) So, essentially, you cannot have an offline-only video game system experience. If you want to play just single-player games... You still have to have an internet connection. You still have to pay for Xbox Live. There is no way out of it. You can't play games, not even games that don't require you in any way to connect to the internet to enjoy. Yeah, and then the second, and depending on your take on rights, licensing, and ownership, the fact that they've essentially decided that used games are a thing of the past. Every game you get as a disc, you will have to install it on the hard drive of your machine, enter any unique code, and based on that checking in once a day, it will allow that game to only play on one at a time. Now, if you want to sell it to someone... For that person to be able to play the same disc on another system, they'll have to repurchase it on the live system to be able to do it. This effectively destroys the entire business model of brick-and-mortar stores selling used games and destroys your ownership of the actual game. When you buy the game, you're not buying it to do with what you will. You're buying a license to play on one system, and if you try to move it elsewhere, you're going to have to pay more. That's the part that really bothers me with this. The experience of getting a game is one that requires you first to pay like 60 bucks. So this stuff is never cheap. So if I want to try the game first, I'm going to have to just go in cold or wait for a bunch of reviews to come in. Oh, or treat your friends like the canary in the coal mine. you got to buy it first. I'm not going to. But then it takes away the ability for that friend to really show you what the game is. They can't bring it over to your house and put it on your system and show you how cool it is. You have to go over there because it's tied to that system. They can't lend you the game so that you can try it out yourself. You can't rent the game so you can try it yourself. It's pretty much killed the, what was it, Gamefly or whatever the system was that allowed you to check games out in the same sort of way as Netflix. That is going to be now dead now. Exactly. Because of that. And not only that, they haven't totally killed the idea of trading used games. They've basically said that if you're going to trade your game in, not only does the publisher of the game have the right to say whether or not you're going to be allowed to do that, and if someone is famous for putting out shitty, unfinished games, (coughs) EA, (laughs) then a lot of those companies are going to say, no, we're not going to let you trade that in. And it gets even worse than that, too. The company itself, Microsoft, gets to have a say on which game stores even have the rights to sell those used games or will have the ability to take those games from you. So essentially, you're going to have folks who are corporate partners with Microsoft who have all the say. You are killing smaller independent companies that do trade-ins. And here's the thing. You can sell that game to your friend, but they have to pay Microsoft again for it. I mean, this is really crazy. Now, imagine, Casey, if I was going to buy a Honda Accord from the dealership. Honda's made a car. I've given them money for the car they made. Now it's mine. Now I'm done with the car, and I want to sell it to you. And suddenly here comes Honda for their pound of flesh. (laughs) It's like, no, you got the money for that car already. I'm selling it to Casey. But no, they're going to have to do that. Otherwise, it won't work. And oh, by the way, you have to get in online once every 24 hours or your car won't drive. 
This is very odious. There's been a huge backlash, and at E3, Sony really, really came down on this, really capitalized on this, because they debuted their used game loan systems, and they had, I think, the president of Sony Japan and a guy there, and they're saying, this is how it works, and he just hands a disc over to the other guy. You know, like, our system is what you had before. If you want to loan a game to a friend, here you go. Hand it over to the guy. So Sony comes out on top about this, not only because they have done away with this foolish nonsense, this feature that no one asked for. There was no one as a gamer who was saying, you know what I want? Less ways to be able to play something that I own. Less rights. And they also have beat the cost of the system by $100. So we'll see how Microsoft hits back. But it seems like Sony, at least, has won the PR war before the systems were even released. When they unveiled the PlayStation 4, they basically aimed their entire presentation at saying, hey, look, we don't suck like Microsoft does. (laughs) And the only thing that I... I'm not sure if they did this, but they should have, is after the presentation, just drop the mic and walk away. (laughs) I would be remiss, because this has been running around through my head since they first announced the features for the Xbox One. They will also come with a Connect 2, so the next iteration of their motion control voice-activated system. And they showcased it as being, so it's great, you, you can walk into a room and say, Xbox on, and have it change the channel or start a game or something. However, the privacy policy and all that they've revealed about it is that the Xbox One A actually needs to have the Kinect connected at all times, and B needs to have a constant connection to the internet to work. You can't unplug it. If you don't like the fact that there is an always-on audiovisual recording system running in your living room that Microsoft owns everything that it records, and they can change their policies at whatever time about how they use the video and audio recordings they take from your system, and you can't unplug it, it will make your system not work if you don't unplug it. This, to me, is also one of these, they gave their customers something that their customers didn't ask for. And I, frankly, won't buy an Xbox One because I don't feel that we are in 1984 and that everyone has to have the view screen that one can't turn off. I'm not a member of the inner party, Mike. I don't know if you are. (laughs) But I yeah. want to be able to turn my view screen off. It's amazing because I can't imagine somebody unveiling a product that pisses off the people who are the primary potential customers for that product harder than Microsoft did. The only thing that it doesn't have on it is when you push the power button, a hand comes out of the machine and slaps you across the face <laughs> really hard. <laughs> that's, the, that's it. I mean... Or maybe just tells you that you're an asshole. (laughs) But then I think they figured they didn't need to add that because you probably already feel like one. (laughs) Touche. So here's the, the question that I have about this, is how long is it going to be now that PlayStation 4 has come out and says, hey, by the way, we're not assholes like those people. Are we going to see some quick last-minute changes to the Xbox One as they try to play last-minute catch-up so that this thing doesn't completely go down the drain, and you have this huge exodus of Xbox players going to PlayStation? I think at this point they have to do something. There was a clip from an interview with the guy who was the president of the interactive division at Microsoft who said, we already have a solution for people who want to play games and who don't have the internet. It's called the Xbox 360, which even the interviewer who was standing next to him was mouth agape at being like, yeah, okay, so so basically you don't have a consistent internet connection. So for example, you're a member of American Armed Forces and you're overseas and you maybe for a long period of time you don't have internet. Fuck you. You don't get to have a new system. You can stick with the old system that they're no longer making new games for. 
You want to not have these problems? Here, have this obsolete model that we no longer support. <laughs> oh, God. Well, yes, I hope to see some very lively comeback from Microsoft, and hopefully in the end they'll produce a better, more open product for consumers on the back end. But as of now, it seems like Microsoft has just taken a giant dump all over their customer base, and they don't really know what to do. I imagine these people are scrambling right now, and they are scared. <laughs> So we actually got one piece of feedback to last month's zombie panel that we did, and this comes from Bethany GRT. She said, as a non-zombie fan like Libby, I found this episode both fascinating and very informative. So thanks muchly for doing it. I may need to look up some of the older films that were discussed, though I'll probably just end up re-watching Shaun of the Dead. Keep up the awesome work. I'm loving this series. Well, thanks, Bethany. One thing caught my eye after we did this episode on crushing zombie skulls in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> and I saw on the racks at Barnes & Noble a magazine for preparing for an actual post-apocalyptic wasteland. Incredible. It's called Living Ready Magazine, and when you flip through it, you realize it's not just this hypothetical could Superman beat up Batman sort of conversations. <laughs> Who's a better Captain Kirk or Picard? It's not just a thought experiment. It actually has ads for all of these dehydrated food companies, and piles of ammo and gold that you can stock in your bunker while society crumbles around you. It seems like this is an actual magazine for people who think that this is a possible, if not probable, outcome. The thing that's hilarious is just the title of the magazine, Living Ready. It makes me think it's a lifestyle magazine for post-apocalyptic hoarders, you know? Like, I just can think of somehow it sits side by side on the same as Better Homes and Gardens, you know? <laughs> just... <laughs> <laughs> if by lifestyle, it's paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> We're at the point now where it's not just a fun, hypothetical game that you play. We're like, okay, I'm living in the zombie apocalypse. Here's how I'd find food. We're actually talking about people who are probably listeners of Coast to Coast AM, because if you listen to that <laughs> conspiracy radio show, these are the sort of advertisers they get. People who really think that, you know, we're about two months away from being beyond Thunderdome <laughs> and think that it's kind of jarring that you live in a country where there is enough of a market for a product like this in a serious, non-ironic way, that you people really think that the grand social experiment of living together and not murdering each other for each other's stuff is a real possibility. That's something that just blows my mind. Well, I said it on our episode three, which uh, I'm immensely proud of, Mike. It was a fantastic episode. If you haven't listened to it, please download it again. This is a puerile fantasy, and the fact that it's become so popular in American culture just doubles down my sense of the fact that a majority of the culture are adult adolescents who have not progressed past a certain state where they can accept reality as reality. It really bothers me the idea that this would actually be something not that you'd be afraid for, that you'd aspire to, and I think that any realistic person would accept the fact that they're probably not going to survive in that kind of landscape. I've never even been in a fist fight in my life, so I can't imagine getting myself into the mindset that I need to kill my neighbors to protect a pile of food that I have in my basement, and actually thinking that's preferable to working nine to five at a company that isn't certainly perfect, <laughs> but doesn't require me to have to go out and kill marauders and defend its borders. 
I am just utterly shocked that people think that our way of life is so horrible that we need to do... I mean, I get when you think of things like, say, Star Trek. Yeah, I could imagine wanting to live in the Federation. I'd love to have, say, a food replicator. And any time I really feel it, I can go into the holodeck and punch Glenn Beck in the face. <laughs> but it's not like I'm actually in constant fear of dying in that world. Right. There are monsters and bad guys that live in the Star Trek universe. But I could see wanting to live in a place like that, or at least have that sort of technology. What I don't want to do is actually have to constantly be a scavenger for the rest of my life, knowing that the stuff that I'm taking, they're not making new stuff of, and that every day that goes by is a day that it's more likely I won't find something. Right. I enjoy post-apocalyptic fiction. I love zombie stories. I love the Jane Goodall, Lord of the Flies, anthropology about it. I like seeing what people become when they're under pressure in fiction. I don't actually want to be put under that pressure myself. I don't want to be the main character in a Jack London novel because I know, I know I'm going to die. <laughs> and I know that in post-apocalyptic fiction, considering that the population is always a lot smaller than it is now, most of the people with these fantasies are going to die as well. So I find the whole thing incredibly childish. It's fun to play a thought experiment, but to actually prepare for it as if it's real and to actually look forward to it, that's something that I cannot understand. I think what the existence of this magazine, and other than the entertainment properties that are using the motif of post-apocalypticism as a way to make a story, these magazines and the companies that sell the iodine pills and the dehydrated foods and the, uh, the generators, it's just like any number of other industries where they're just people that can make a quick buck off of people's anxieties and fears, whether or not they'll actually use it. So you can put a lot of this down to just basic good old human greed. And then in that way, it's as sad as any other time when we're wasting our time and energy and resources trying to prepare for something that will never happen. Now, speaking of fictional fears and anger and anxiety, an episode of Game of Thrones finally happened. Oh, dear God. Oh, dear God. <laughs> now, I've been a fan of the books A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. R. Martin for a really long time. So I was excited when not only did they do an HBO television show based on the books, but they did a good one. Then when the first season ended of Game of Thrones and a popular and prominent character is executed, everyone lost their shit over this. And I just kept thinking... Yo, you folks haven't seen anything. <laughs> because whenever I give somebody these books for the first time, and I say, you should check this out, this is a great series. However, there will come a time in the third book where something that will happen is so shocking and jarring and terrifying that you will not know how to move on. You'll probably want to put the book down for a week, or you may hurl it across the room. You will pull out your hair and scream at the walls. And you'll say the series is broken, I'm never reading George R.R. R. Martin again. <laughs> You're going to come to that point, I won't tell you what it is, but when you get to it, you will know it. And after you cool down, pick up the book again, because it gets really, really good after that. Well, that moment just happened on the TV show. And people are predictably freaking out, because it's probably the most shocking thing that's happened on that, at this point, yeah. and certainly on most American television, of period. Course. Of course. The thing that I like about George R.R. R. Martin as a writer is that he plays for keeps and that he doesn't bluff. There's a lot of fiction that I really do like, like, say, Batman or James Bond or Indiana Jones. These are all characters I really enjoy, but I never feel genuine danger for them. That when Indiana Jones 
is stuck on the side of a tank and it's driving for the side of a cliff and he's fighting Nazis and it looks like he's in an inescapable situation. Or when James Bond is strapped to a table and a laser is about to cut him in half. <laughs> or Batman is tied back to back with Robin and being lowered into a vat with crocodiles in it by the penguin. I'm never really afraid that they're going to die. For me, there's never the sense that this is really it. Oh my God, Batman's going to die in this story. And what I love about George R.R. Martin is that he's willing to do it. He's willing to kill Batman in a Batman story a third of the way into it. And then you're left with a much better story. Like, what now? He knows how to use those as springboards for better stories. And not only that, when you go back and reread it, Batman's death sounds so inevitable. <laughs> and you kick yourself for not noticing how many hints you were given that this was coming. Because we've been really trained as fiction consumers to expect main characters and good guys to live. That, yeah, they're going to suffer for a long time, but these bad guys are going to get their comeuppance. And what happens when you hit this moment where, holy crap, I think the bad guys just won. I think it's incredible, too. You don't see it very often, and I agree with what you said. And there's one other thing that I'd point out, which is what makes it so good about what Martin does is that you are guessing the entire time. Once you know that any character can die, anything could change, anything is up for grabs, anything could happen. And that's a way to draw you into a story that, that the next Spider-Man movie is not going to be able to draw you into the story. There's no way in which Spider-Man is going to die a third of the way through the next Spider-Man movie, and so it's not really going to be that exciting. But for the next book and the next season of Game of Thrones, it could be that exciting. Uh, don't get me wrong, I do like a lot of escapist fiction where there is that safety net. I'm a, I'm a big fan of characters like Batman or Spider-Man, but I've got to say there's this extra sting that you get when you're reading a Martin book or watching the TV show where you honestly don't know if this character is going to die or not. And then when they do survive it or they do escape, it feels so satisfying because it felt like there was real danger there. A character pops up and has their knife to the throat of this child who's been one of your main characters for the longest time. You're never really afraid that Harry Potter's not going to win. I mean, his name's on the front of the book. Right. You know, George R. R. Martin is kind of like a manic depressive author. When the highs are high, they're high. And when the lows are low, they're so terribly low. <laughs> I, I, what I like about him is that he is totally willing to pull the trigger. The way he described it was that he's writing a story about war. And if he wrote a story about war where nobody died, mm -hmm. it's kind of an insult. How is it that every single one of these good guy characters survives? There's a line in the very first book that the character of Littlefinger says to Sansa Stark when they're at a tournament. He tells her, life is not a song, and one of these days you will learn that. <laughs> That's the theme of the series in a lot of ways, is that life doesn't work that way. He knows a lot of our expectations of the fantasy genre. He subverts them, he surprises us, but it isn't just shock for shock's sake. He's done the work leading up to it that you totally understand why this happened. We're just always expecting that last-minute James Bond escape. It adds to a sense of grit and, dare I say, about a fantasy story, realism, because, yes, in a real war, heroes are heroes, but heroes also die. So in that respect, it is different than what you'll read from a Tolkien, a Zelazny, or insert whatever fantasy author there. You may have noticed in this conversation, we didn't actually spoil what happened on Game of Thrones. <laughs> and it led to me thinking about something, the very idea of spoilers. What is it that about our current culture where 
you have to be so careful about where every single person is around you who may be taking in the same culture that you are, whether it's a TV show or a book or a movie that not everyone sees something or reads something at the same time or plays a game at the same time. So you have this real sensitivity. We actually went to the Radio vs. the Martians Facebook page and asked this question, is there a statute of limitation on spoilers? Is there a point at which you should simply expect to have already seen this by now and that the onus is actually on you to avoid being spoiled versus the rest of us having to never talk about what just happened on TV and we're dying to talk about it with somebody who has. At what point is it unreasonable for someone to demand spoiler warnings? And it's funny because the divergence of opinion is striking. So Wesley DeNomad said, death to those who give spoilers, unless I've already seen it. That's pretty extreme. And I guess you could say on the far other end of the line, Aaron Bellamy says, I found that spoilers don't really affect my enjoyment of a movie. So some people are obviously very sensitive to it, and other people could care less. Past panelist Rich Lyons said that once it hits Netflix, it's fair game. Robert Ray also backed him up, said Rich Lyons is right. I generally wait for Netflix to watch most movies, since going to the theater is usually out of my budget. If I happen to see or hear a spoiler, it's certainly not going to ruin the experience for me. In some cases, it actually heightened the anticipation effect as I wait for the twist to be revealed. You know it's coming, you just don't know when. I still do this with movies I have seen. Hmm. It's so interesting because my thought about this was so the Star Trek Into Darkness movie, there was a huge reveal that was very closely guarded by Paramount and by PR that was out there. So I'm going to feel free to spoil now because the situation. Benedict Cumberbatch's character was known through all the marketing as well as on his IMDb page for the movie as John Harrison, a character that we didn't actually know who he was. We just knew he was going to be the villain. The movie came out, and I checked two days after the North American premiere of the movie, and the IMDb page had already replaced the name John Harrison with Khan. So the statute of limitations, as far as it held for IMDb, was two days. After the opening weekend, it's totally over, the spoiler is gone, there's no need to keep it a secret. Well, the movie's been in theaters for about a month now, so I think it's fairly safe to say that this is a movie about Khan. Jay Coster would disagree, though, with IMDb. He says, I'd say one year on most, by then almost anyone who would want to read or watch can. Yeah, I mean, well, one year sounds a little strange to me. I was rapping about what other types of spoilers there are. People who are diehard sports fans who record the game and then, if they can't be there, and then go home to do it, and they stick their fingers in their ears and avert their eyes from television screens and stop listening to people because they don't want to know the outcome of the game... Your statute of limitations, your, the live wire of this bomb that's waiting to explode, can only be a day or so until eventually the next game has been on, everything has moved on, and you will have already seen it. So I guess it depends on the medium. I think sports is a good analogy for this, is because sports is always about spoilers. A lot of people watch a game wanting to not know how it ends, and sometimes they'll watch a game that was from maybe a week ago. But here's the thing that comes with that, is that you also bear some of the responsibility for keeping yourself unspoiled. If you're somebody who can't know the sports results at all, that I have the game on my TiVo, I want to watch it, if you hear people talking about it, you should walk away. 
You should stay off of sports websites. You should not watch Sports Center. You should not. It's the same thing goes with sci-fi movies. Stay the hell off of IO9 <laughs> if you haven't seen Star Trek Into Darkness. Stay the hell off of websites that you know will post spoilers or will write stories based on the revelation of a spoiler or having discussions that are based on discussions based on the spoiler being revealed. Right. It is difficult, too. This is also, yes, you are responsible, but the deck is stacked against you. The way they trailer films now is they actually do spoil a large portion of the plot of the movie up to and including the twist of a movie. So there was a Richard Gere movie that came out, I think, two or three years ago called The Double. The twist of the movie is that Richard Gere is the secret agent. And they spoiled the twist in the trailer itself. In fact, most trailers will show prominent scenes from the movie all the way up until usually just the very last act. So in that sense, you can hardly avoid spoilers if you just want to see the first trailer for any movie coming out. Everyone's trying to top someone else, and they think that if they can show the absolute best thing that happens in that movie, that they can get them to put down 10 bucks. Like the last Fast and Furious movie has in the trailer the tank bust out of that vault thing haul ass down a freeway at like 60 miles an hour. I didn't even know tanks could do that. But, you know, it's a Vin Diesel movie, so they can. <laughs> and I, they're like, holy shit, it's a tank! I would think that it would be much more satisfying to have that oh shit, what the hell moment if you didn't know it was coming. That if you're just watching a car chase and suddenly a fucking tank that can go 70 miles an hour just bursts out of something and is chasing them down the freeway... That would be much more satisfying if you didn't know it was coming, because you'd probably squeal, laugh, and then go, holy crap, this is over the top, which is exactly what the movie wants you to do. But it feels like it took some of the enjoyment out of that. However, Andy Capellish actually has a slightly different standard depending on what medium he's talking about. He says, if something is particularly juicy, use good judgment. Comics are fair game the day of. Video games are all a gray area. I'd say a month, but it may actually be about two weeks. Now, for movies, he says, after opening weekend, it's fair game. For TV shows, do people even watch broadcast TV anymore? <laughs> I'd say give until Sunday of the week if it aired. If something airs on Sunday, then wait till at least Friday. He says, the most important thing is to not act like a little crybaby if something does get spoiled. I've seen grown-ass people pitch a mother of a fit over a minor spoiler. People grousing about them is the worst. I agree, I agree. We're overly sensitive. Where it's like our sense of being offended has extended to people letting a spoiler slip. And yeah, I think you're right. Personal responsibility. It's not violent video games' fault. It's your responsibility to keep your kids under control. It's also your responsibility to keep your media exposure under control. And if you don't want something to be spoiled, then don't engage. Here's another question I have, though, now that we have different questions for different mediums. Television shows are being aired on Netflix now. Right. And this is happening in a different way, that House of Cards is the first one, and now the new season of Arrested Development is airing there as well. TV shows are being dropped one season in one chunk for you to digest at your leisure. And if you choose to gorge yourself on Arrested Development, which I did, where I watched all the episodes in a single day, I just said, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to watch, <laughs> I'm going to watch Arrested Development. And there are people who are going to want to watch them one at a time, or maybe even do it one in a week, depending on how busy their schedule is. If they can't find one day to put aside. How does that work? How long is it enough time that you can assume that people have seen the entire thing? Because it's not like Game of Thrones where they're airing it on a specific schedule where everyone has that moment that makes their jaw drop at about the same time. 
I suppose, Mike, you touched the important part there, is that we'll just have to become more nuanced the way that we handle our spoilers. And so is this an appropriate time to say that for any sufficiently new information for any of our future Radio vs. the Martians podcasts, we will comply with the obligatory spoiler alert at the beginning of the podcast, will we not, Mike? I think people should expect it by default. I don't think we've ever, <laughs> I don't think we've ever had a single panel where we haven't spoiled things. We haven't spoiled endings. We haven't spoiled reveals of who's whose secret brother or whatnot. And I don't think that's going to change because when we can't talk about that, it really limits our ability to talk about any of it. Ben Turner actually had an interesting thing to say. He said, for some things, major plot revelations that would have once been spoilers have become part of pop culture. He says, for instance, the end of Planet of the Apes, I am your father, Rosebud is a sled, etc. Personally, I can't stand having things spoiled for me, and I do my best to avoid spoiling them for others. I really love that he mentions Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Not only is that movie 40 years old now, more than 40 years old, but the spoiler is probably the most famous thing about it. And they even put it on the DVD box. The image of Charlton Heston on the beach, on his knees in front of the destroyed Statue of Liberty is probably the one thing that people remember most about Planet of the Apes. Or a movie like, say, Soylent Green. I mean, most people haven't even seen Soylent Green. I mean, I love it. I love those sort of dystopian 1970s Heston movies. But Soylent Green is people. Spoiler. <laughs> That's what people know. More than anything about that movie, that is the one thing people remember about it. And it's part of our pop culture. Everyone knows who Luke Skywalker's father is. And it's not even like if I mention that out of hand, nobody can really get mad at me because it's so old at this point. I was one year old when that movie came out. Mm. I think there is a statute of limitations, but I think as with anything else, people's tolerances for them are going to be different. And so we have to find the middle ground, Mike. We have to find the middle ground. The middling way, sir. The middling way. <laughs> so I think it's a good time for us to announce what our next panel discussion is going to be for the month of July. I'm so feverishly excited about this, Mike. The time has come. Oh, it feels like it's overdue. It feels like every single point five discussion we've had to this point has dragged us kicking and screaming back to talking about this, man. That's right. <laughs> George Lucas. Oh, yes. We are going to be talking about George Lucas. The man who gave us Star Wars, the man who gave us Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, <laughs> the man who gave us Indiana Jones, the man who gave us THX 1138, the man who gave us Red Tails, the man who gave us uh, American Graffiti. Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. <laughs> yes. I think it's safe to say with just that list, this is a man who has a spotty record. He's the man who has won the love of an entire generation of nerds whose movies have become this common denominator for all of our childhoods, that there isn't one of us who probably hasn't played a game of Star Wars with our friends pretending to be Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia at some point. This guy who could be so beloved and fall to such lengths that he is essentially a walking target for nerd derision in recent years. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his work. We're going to talk about the reaction to his work. And we're going to talk about whether he deserves the abuse that gets heaped on him. So that's going to be our next episode. We look forward to hearing from you. Again, I am Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And we hope to see you on the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians.
Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Your Grace, I feel I've been remiss in my duties. I've given you meats and wine and music, but I haven't shown you the hospitality you deserve. <laughs>